0: And I was never satisfied, you know, I could win a tournament, I could have a, you know, but but it was always just a temporary relief from the ongoing stress that I felt. Eventually, I also didn't know what when, when enough was enough and I overdid it and I got injured and that ended my professional career.
1: We're back with a brand new series of How To Be Sad. I'm Helen Russell, author, journalist, and happiness researcher. And each week I'll be talking to a special guest about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. Now, if you're listening in the US, I am excited to share that the book, How To Be Sad, is going to be available in bookstores everywhere starting October 5th. You can pre-order now on bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you like to buy books, eBooks, and audiobooks. And I will love you forever. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Psychologist and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, who taught the most popular course at Harvard on positive psychology, is perhaps counterintuitively the perfect guest to help us navigate how to be sad well. From a dashed career as an elite squash player to exposing the perils of perfectionism and the fallacy of arrival, as well as the importance of feeling all of our feelings, Tal has explored highs and lows personally and professionally. He shared some of these experiences when I interviewed him for my book, How to Be Sad. And now, Tal says in his latest book, Happiness Studies, one of the major obstacles to becoming happier is the belief that life can and ought to be free of painful emotions. When we dismiss painful emotions as negative, when we do what we can to avoid them and reject them, we pay a high price. We compromise our potential for learning and growing. We experience more pain than is necessary, since when we reject painful emotions, they overstay their welcome. And ultimately, we forego our potential to experience pleasurable emotions. So Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you, Helen. Great to be here.
1: So my whole wheelhouse is that, is that many of us have been sold this narrow definition of happiness that means never being sad and that does us all a disservice. So I loved reading happiness studies. Can you talk a little more about the central idea, the idea of, of whole being that you write about in the book?
0: So, you know, the, the idea for, uh, for the book or for happiness studies in general came to me a, a few years ago when uh, a question came to mind. And the question was, how is it? that there is a field of study for uh, psychology, which is what I've been doing, philosophy, history, business, medicine, you name it, and there is no uh, field of study for happiness. Yeah, there is positive psychology, but that's just the psychology of happiness. What about what philosophers had to say about happiness and and historians and economists and neuroscientists and uh, and poets and, and so on? And I decided to help create a field that looks at Happiness from an interdisciplinary perspective and um, and that's what I've been doing over the past uh, few years looking at, at happiness on multiple levels, whether it's the spiritual level, the physical level the the intellectual, the relational, the emotional level, and looking at it from the perspective of different disciplines.
1: I was really interested in your book to um, to see Helen Keller quoted in there. And, and she's somebody that, you know, we learn about at school. I did the miracle worker at school, but she's not someone I necessarily associated with this field. So can you share that quote on how she came to mind?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so Helen Keller is, uh, is a brilliant philosopher and uh, has had a lot to say about uh, optimism, about happiness, about sadness, uh, about hardship. And she defines happiness as wholeness. In other words, she looks at happiness as a um, multifaceted, not just as most people would look at, you know, pleasure, you know, I was so happy going to the beach, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy because uh, having an ice cream, you know, for her happiness was, was much more than that. And maybe, you know, forced by her circumstances to think about happiness in a deeper way, because she certainly did experience a great deal of sorrow, as many of us do, though, probably for her at a different level. And she, she um, expanded a lot of, a lot of thought in that concept, realizing that it's more than just the superficial um, form of uh, pleasure that we associate with happiness today.
1: And I wonder why you think it is that many of us have grown up with the idea that happiness means never experiencing pain or sadness. You know, I, I was really interested that you look at different cultural approaches to happiness and Ubuntu and Kintsugi and Confucius. And I wonder how important it was for you that this wasn't a blinkered you know, North American or UK biased view of of what happiness means.
0: Yeah, you know, this uh, this biased view came to a great extent because of the um, the self help movement. And um, you know, h- historically, people didn't see you know happiness as as just pleasure. But maybe that's because we didn't have the luxury of uh, you know reading um, you know hundreds of self help books or being exposed. To such a philosophy. You know, life was hard and that, you know, that, that, that was part of it. Yes, there were moments of pleasure and that was wonderful, but that certainly didn't define or could never define a life. And then suddenly, many of the hardships and difficulties and existential challenges were taken away. And people thought, okay, so we can take, you know, the, the survival challenge away and we can take the, um, the daily hardship of working in the field away. And therefore, what's left would be just the pleasure. And that's not the case, obviously. You know, there's as much suffering today as there has has always been, you know, in different realms, in different areas. But, you know, suffering, pain, sadness, anger, anxiety, all these painful emo- emotions are part and parcel of, of every life, of a whole life.
1: And so I got overexcited. So tell me then... Some of the concepts from from other cultures that we may not have grown up being so familiar with. I I love Ubuntu and have been trying to learn more about this myself. But what, what were the main ones that really sort of stood out for you that other cultures perhaps get right?
0: Yeah, so so let me start with Ubuntu. Ubuntu is about the interconnectedness of everyone. You know, it's it's I am because you are. You know, no person is an island. Uh, remarked uh, John Donne, and we can certainly not enjoy a full and fulfilling life, a whole being, uh, without the presence of other people. Now, being with other people also often leads to, um, to conflict and, and arguments, and it, it's certainly not a sterile life. This is, unfortunately, the false expectation that many people have going into a relationship. So saying that I am because you are, t- talking about our interdependence, also means uh, struggling together and, and going through this journey together. Um, then there is kintsugi, which is the uh, Japanese concept. And, and kintsugi is the, the art of putting together uh, shreds, of putting together broken parts. And very often, you know, if, if you break a, a plate or, 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 or an object, you stick the parts together, uh, you connect them. You don't have a perfect object, but in many ways you have a more beautiful Object which has uh, which is uh, beautiful because of its imperfection, and that's an important metaphor for life. Yes, surely we can we can break, we can hurt, and each time as a result of this uh, this breakage, we uh, we grow uh, more more beautiful. You know, I, I often ask my students. the the following question, you know, what if somewhere in the future, and and this is by the way, right now, a theoretical question, it could become very real. What if in the future will be, there'll be a machine that will be able to liberate us from all of our sadness, from all of our anger, you know, so we would come home in the evening after a hard day at work, or our kids would come home after, you know, having a fight with their their, uh, best friend, and we'd say, don't worry, sweetheart, to them or to us, let's get rid of this. And we just go into this machine and and, and all will be well. Would that be a better world, a, a happier world? And my argument is that, uh, or, or my fear is that we get to such a such a place where we are able to do away with all hardships and difficulties. And here's why. If you ask most people to reflect on the periods when they grew the most, when they were at their best in, in terms of uh, uh, developing which defined who they are today. Most people would think back to difficult experiences, to hardships, and these are the times that help us grow the most. And yet so many of us strive for this uh, for this perfect life, for this life that is devoid of painful emotions. It's not an ideal, it's not a utopia, it's a dystopia.
1: How have we not learned that from sort of Aldous Huxley and Brave New World? It's, it seems mad that my generation certainly w- were raised with this idea that but- you should be trying to avoid those things, or you certainly didn't want to talk about them. I mean, was it similar for you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the immediate assumption is that, oh, you, you, you're feeling down, you're upset, you're something's wrong with you. Something is wrong with your life. And, you know, I, I always remind myself, my, my, my students and, and children, that there are only two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions. The two kinds are the psychopaths and dead people. So if we do experience painful emotions, it means that, that, that everything is right with us, with, with, the, with the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something to try and alleviate, because it's also a signal telling us that, well, maybe we need to change something about our life. But first and foremost, it tells us something's right. You're a human being, you're, and you're not a psychopath, and you're alive.
1: So two ticks, you're doing well now, and what the next step after that? And I wonder... Because the way you describe, you know, positive psychology and your work and your research and and your teaching, do you think do you ever get frustrated of of public perhaps misconceptions of positive psychology? I feel as though there's been a conflagration of of positive psychology and toxic positivity Mm -hmm. in recent times, and it doesn't sound at all as though you are you are pushing for a world where we just go for positivity above all else. But is that a frustration in your field?
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, uh, Professor Marty Seligman, who's considered the founder of the field of positive psychology, has said on a number of occasions that uh, if he went back to 1998, which is when he founded or co-founded the field, he would not call it positive psychology, specifically because of what you said, because people associate it with positive thinking you know, positive psychology is not positive thinking. Yeah, there are times when positive thinking is helpful. Uh, there are times when, uh, you know, focusing on the, uh, on the full part of the glass is, is what you want to do. But to then refer to every other emotion as negative or to every other psychology as negative, that's problematic. And, you know, that's why I call uh, happiness whole being. Because it's not just about positive thinking. It's not just about positive emotions. In fact, I I don't use the the term positive emotions because that implies that all other emotions are negative. I rather use the term painful emotions and pleasurable emotions.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for clarifying. I think people will find that hugely helpful. I would love for you to talk about perfectionism. And that's something that we've spoken about before, which I found it it changed my perspective quite a lot. But the, the perils and the sunk cost and how how actually learning that perfectionism is a serious problem rather than an acceptable flaw, which I feel as though it was when I was growing up and in my 20s, it was sort of considered the thing that was okay to say as your weakness on your CV. I'd love for you to talk about how, how it is quite serious and how even if we've been pursuing it for some time, we should stop. Yeah.
0: So with perfectionism, it's important to to, to make the distinction that many academics have made of late between adaptive and maladaptive perfectionism. So, what's adaptive perfectionism? So, adaptive perfectionism is about being responsible, about being hardworking, about uh, caring uh, about others, about oneself, about one life, about being ambitious. This is uh, adaptive perfectionism. Maladaptive perfectionism is about the intense and extreme fear of failure. It's about the inability to, to accept and embrace Success or or even progress, it's about constantly being on the lookout for uh, for flaws. It's about being defensive. You know, this form of perfectionism is harmful. It's harmful to the individual. It's harmful to relationships. It's harmful psychologically and physically. And um, this this is no laughing matter. Again, as as you pointed out in in interviews, we would often. When asked what's our weakness, we would, you know, dismiss it. Oh, well, you know, I'm a perfectionist. Of course saying, you can trust me. I'm ambitious. I'm hardworking. I'm responsible. No, this is perf- uh, this form of perfectionism that, that, that we're talking about uh, hurts relationships. And, you know, when I talk about this, I'm talking about it, unfortunately, from from experience. You know, I know what it did to to my relationships with, with others. I know what it did to my relationship with myself. I know also how it hurt my potential for growing and learning and celebrating life. I think the place where perfectionism hurt me most was in my intimate relationships. Why? Because perfectionism is, um, is about not accepting, not embracing failure or, or pain or, or any form of deviation from the straight and narrow. So each time when I was criticized, whether explicitly or implicitly, I would immediately lash back. And I would immediately try to prove why they were wrong and I was right. Because I had to protect this, uh, this facade of perfection. Now, it's very difficult, probably impossible, to enjoy a healthy and flourishing and happy relationship when one is, when I was, always on the, on the defensive, always on the lookout for chinks in, in the armor. Now, what that did to, to, to my relationships, it, it wreaked havoc. You know, how can, how can you create intimacy without vulnerability? So that's the price that, that I paid for years. And, you know, when I, I, I say I paid, uh, you know, I use the past tense because uh, today I do enjoy, you know, healthy, happy, imperfect Relationships with an emphasis on imperfect for, for various reasons. One because neither me nor my uh, loved ones are psychopaths or dead, so we are uh, you know we are imperfect, and um, and and with that comes conflict and struggles and 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 some pain as well, which which are all you know natural experiences. Won't use it in the past because um, you know Karen Hornay, who was a psychologist, she was a student of uh, Freud and wrote a lot back in the 1930s, talked about neuroses. And she said about neuroses, neuroses never go away. They're always remnants of these neuroses. Now we can learn to manage them. They become less dominant, but they're always there. Now, perfectionism is a neurosis and therefore it never goes away. And I still, you know, as many people do, you know, even though I'm aware of it and work on it, still have the inclination towards perfectionism. And maybe my, you know, my first uh, reaction to criticism is not, oh, I'm so grateful that I'm being criticized and what an opportunity to grow now. Rather, the first reaction is, no, she's wrong, I'm right. And then, oops, I realize my perfectionism. I realize this neurosis and I say, okay, how can I respond in the most benevolent and generous way to her and to me? So, you know, I end my book on perfectionism by saying, my name is Tal and I'm a perfectionist because, you know, it's always there. It's always present. The, the question is, can I become a more conscious, aware of it, and therefore better able to deal with it?
1: And how were you able to have that enlightenment, this this idea of, of, of being aware of it being a flaw, a neurosis, and and being able to change your behavior accordingly?
0: Yeah, you know, what, going back to what we discussed just a few minutes ago, pain is a motivator, and, and painful experiences lead to change. And, and, and it hurt me. I saw that it hurt people whom I cared about and it prevented me. And it was, you know, as clear as night followed day, it prevented me from, uh, from growing and it prevented my relationships from fulfilling their, their potential. And uh, I realized that uh, I just didn't want to go on living in that, in that way, you know, hurting myself and hurting others. I think uh, a big change came for me when, um, when, when we had children. And I said, you know, I don't want to raise my children this way. I don't want to grow, uh, my children to grow up this way because, you know, children op- often do what we do rather than what we say. So I could tell them, you know, embrace your emotions, be more accepting of, of yourself, learn from failure. And if I didn't live that way, they wouldn't live that way.
1: So it's a bit like the good, good enough parenting.
0: It's very much like the good enough parenting. You know, um, uh, Donald Winnicott is, uh, when it comes to parenting, certainly my role model, you know, when he points out that the perfect parent is not the parent that children need. It's the parent that would set up children for, for failure and misery. I realize, well, just like uh, the good enough parent, I also have to accept the good enough in, in myself and others.
1: I love. Uh, there's a part in in the pursuit of perfect where you talk about if we're experiencing perhaps life envy, we should try an exercise that shows how nobody has it sorted in all aspects of their life. And you take five areas of your life that are most important to you, if I remember rightly, and you think about what what would be enough, and and that nobody you know is getting it right in all of those areas. Can you tell us more about this, or or how if that's evolved, in fact, since you first wrote it?
0: Yeah, you know. Um when before having before having children i basically got very close to my ideal my perfect uh life in terms of work you know i was uh you know i love my work and um and and i would spend you know 10 12 14 hours a day working and and still had you know some you know semblance of 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 relationship Mm -hmm. with uh with with my partner i could still see my friends you know um almost when, when, when I wanted to. So overall, my life was, was okay. And then came the children or the first child and, and everything uh, suddenly got out of whack because um, you know, when I was at work, I was feeling guilty that I wasn't spending time with children. I was with children, I wasn't working enough. And suddenly I felt like nothing was, uh, was, was enough. And I went through a, you know, a crisis. And again, from crises, we, we, we often grow. And I asked myself, okay, so, you know, how can I get my life back on track? And I actually made a list of the things that I wanted to have in my life. You know, so I wanted work and I wanted 10, 12 hours a day of work. And I wanted to spend time with my, you know, with my children and with my my wife. And uh, I also wanted to exercise regularly. And I just started yoga there then to help me relax. So I wanted to do more yoga. And I made a list of all the things that I wanted to do with my life. And I looked at them and I said, yes. I've, you know, I've found it, I, you know, I I pinned it down and then I added up the hours and it came up to, you know, between 48 and 72 hours, you know, not 24 hours. And it doesn't matter how I squeezed it. I couldn't get it in, you know, even if I worked you know, around the clock. Then I said, okay, so this is impossible, this ideal life. And it was at that time, you know, with a new child that I read Winnicott and his idea of the good enough parent. And I said, well, maybe instead of the perfect ideal life, I can look for the good enough Optimal life. Now, the word "optimal" became very central to my life, to my pursuits. Optimal means best possible given the constraints of reality. So, ideal is best. Period. Optimal is best possible given the constraints of reality. So, I said, okay. So, given the constraints of reality, what would be good enough in terms of work? And um, and I said, well, it won't be you know fourteen hours, but you know eight hours. And an eight hour day is certainly good enough. What would be good enough in terms of uh, spending time with my with my children, with my with my wife, with my family? And you know, ideal would be you know every day having dinner together and you know, maybe breakfast as well and, and and going out on on dates constantly and that would be perfect. Well, perfect. No, but good enough would be less than that. You know, maybe uh, you know three dinners uh, a week and then a, a weekly date. With uh, you know, with with my wife, not perfect, good enough. Exercise, you know, exercise. Perfect would be exercising every day in two hours of yoga a day. Not realistic. Good enough would be you know three times a day of exercise and then you know three times a week of, uh, of of yoga. Good enough and on and on for every life domain. I created over time this good enough timeline for my life. And again, it wasn't perfect, but it provided satisfaction rather than ongoing frustration. And I encourage you know, my, my, my clients today, my, my students, to actually write down and have two lists, one of their perfect life, ideal life, and one of their good enough life, and then see how they can navigate. And you know, when, when, I, when I introduced this exercise to um, 20-year-old students at, at Harvard, I almost had a coup in my class. They said, no, we don't want to settle. We don't want good enough. We want an ideal life. And you know, and, 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 and I thought to myself, well, you know, when I was 20, when I was 25, I also uh, strove for, for an ideal perfect life. So maybe, may, maybe it's an age thing. I do think that, that I would be a lot happier in my 20s had I, had I settled for good enough. But I know that it was more difficult for me to accept it than, than, than it was when I was in my 30s and, and, and certainly today in my 50s.
1: That's so interesting then. I wonder if it's inevitable that in our 20s we have to have these the this, this sky-high ideals, do you think?
0: You know, maybe it's part of the um, the inevitable struggles of 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 a young life that we that that we need to, you know, to 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 push against, you know, the the, the limits, the real constraints of reality. And maybe that's part of how we grow. I don't know.
1: I was thinking, yes, as you were saying, I was thinking of the word pushing, and then also frustrations, and when these are unmet, you get these resentments. And I wonder if you have any, with all that you know, sort of coping strategies or or suggestions that you live by or that you have taught students of how to to cope when when we do feel these resentments and frustrations and as though life is not as we would wish.
0: So you know the first thing, and we, we 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 talked about this briefly, the first thing is is accepting, embracing. Uh, accepting the frustration, accepting the the painful emotion, accepting it as part and parcel of, of our life. Now, how do we accept that? How do we embrace it? So how do we give ourselves the permission to be human? There, there are various ways, let me let me just point to three. One is talking about it. If I'm uh, talking about it to my best friend or to a therapist or coach or, or to a trusted colleague, just talking about it in and of itself, makes us feel better. You know, it's not for nothing that we go to a therapist. What do we do for, you know, 50 minutes or an hour? We talk and afterwards we feel better or have a deep conversation with our best friend and feel better after. Why? Because what we're doing by talking about our emotions, our frustrations in the heart, we are expressing rather than suppressing our emotion. So, you know, what Freud called the talking cure certainly works then we can write about it. There's a lot of research coming out of the work of uh, Jamie Pennybaker, Laura King, and and many others uh, showing the benefits of journaling. So whether it's uh, the protocol by Jamie Pennybaker is spend uh, 20 minutes on four consecutive days, so a total of 80 minutes, writing down about your most traumatic, Uh, Experiences, most difficult experiences, and just doing that. And you can write about the same thing on the four consecutive days, or you can write about different things, but just writing about it, knowing that no one will see it. You know, it's for your eyes only. Those 80 minutes end up having a remarkable impact, not just on your day or week. In fact, on on the day you feel worse. You know, you're bringing issues up, Uh, you know, you're raising them and and they may have been uh, safely uh, hidden. So writing about it actually makes you feel worse in the short term, but in the long term, within a week or two, and for the whole, you know, for a year after, anxiety levels are lower compared to a control group, you're physically healthier as a result of expressing your emotions for 80 minutes for the following year or or long. I mean, they stopped measuring after a year, but presumably it, 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 it actually changes your life. Just expressing your emotions rather than suppressing them. In writing, you become more social, more outgoing as a result of those 80 minutes, and, and, and the list goes on. So, journaling is a um, science and an and art which is not often frequently used. Karen Hornai, going back to her, has a whole book on self analysis. It's a book that was written you know, close to 100 years ago. It has so much value to our psychological um, development, and, and, and I, my, my, my students certainly read it. And uh, it has a great deal of, of wisdom in it. So, spending time writing about what we're going through, whether it's about our most traumatic experiences or about a painful uh, emotion that we're experiencing right now, um, goes a long way. The third way of expressing rather than suppressing emotion is uh, shedding a tear. There's so much research showing that when we cry, we benefit physically and psychologically. For instance, when we cry, we release oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone. Uh, so we feel you know, all warm and fuzzy inside after a good cry. When we cry, we release um, opiates. These are you know, naturally induced drugs that help us feel better, calm us down. And this is a way of expressing rather than suppressing emotion, giving ourselves the permission to be human. So talking about it, writing about it, we're just crying.
1: That is fascinating. Thank you very much for sharing. The, the writing about it, I, want, I wanted to ask, you're doing it for, for 20 minutes on four consecutive days. Are you doing that once a year? Is, are there any studies showing the benefits if we repeat that?
0: So um, repeating is certainly good. Repeating too much is not good. So um, Socrates wrote 2,500 years ago or said uh, then that the unexamined life is not worth living. And, you know, this is certainly the foundation of, uh, you know, the rich intellectual history of, of our, you know, world. But while the unexamined life is not worth living, the over-examined life is tedious. So, so many people, by the way, and especially psychologists uh, or people dealing in this, you know, realm of uh, self-help or, or well-being are there where, 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 we, where we examine too much where we analyze too much. And you know, often it, we, you know, we just need to live life, we just need to cry, we just need to rejoice uh, rather than constantly analyzing you know, what we're going through. And journaling is analysis. So it's great, it's good, it helps in moderation. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean, as you said, once a year? Does it mean you know, every, every week? And, and the thing is here, it depends. So we know that uh, you know, we have the parameters. Journaling helps, analysis helps, uh, too much journaling, too much analysis hurts. Now, where are we on that continuum? And this is where I'd, I'd like to introduce a, another uh, a concept. And again, I didn't make this, this up, but um, another concept which is, which is important. So we very often talk about research and what the research shows clearly is that uh, analysis helps, that, that, that journaling helps. The research also shows that too much hurts, but then we have to move from research to me-search. And here there are, why? Because there are individual differences. And while for me, it may be good to keep a journal once every other week, uh, for you, once a month may be just the right amount. So the research tell us, keep a journal. The me search is about exploring and seeing, you know, how much helps me, how much hurts me. This also, uh, me-search also in the context of different periods in life, you know, that usually I keep a journal, you know, I would write in my journal once every other week. And it wasn't even, you know, and sometimes it was every 10 days and sometimes it was every three weeks. Now, during COVID, I write a journal at least once a week because I feel like I needed more. And and again, this is a result, not of research, a result of me-search, me experimenting, trying out Different, uh, different approaches. You know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, his autobiography is subtitled My Experiments with Truth. It's not my finding truth. It's not my ultimate truth. It's my experiments with truth. And this is uh, you know, a, a great uh, guideline for how we live our life. Let's experiment with truth. Let's try out principles. Let's use research so that we can further explore it with me-search.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned about crying. And I spoke to the tear professor, Advingerhutz, and he was telling me about how he felt it was his life's mission to prove Darwin wrong. And Darwin said that tears serve no purpose. And he he was sort of sharing, as you have, the, all the benefits. But that his findings have shown that men do tend to cry less mm. because boys and uh, are socialized to think that it is less acceptable for them to express their sorrow in tears by about the age of 10. So what then for men who are perhaps not getting the benefits of having a good cry?
0: Start crying. Uh, is, uh, you know, <laughs> Immediately. You know, there's uh, there's some fascinating research that uh, explains this, uh, this phenomenon. For instance, um, there are certain cultures where expressing emotions is... Uh, frowned upon where it's, it's, it's a sign of uh, weakness. Interesting research in these cultures is that um, once you um, provide people the safety that others don't see them or others are, um, don't judge them, then they're much more likely to open up. With men as well, once they feel that it's okay to express emotions, that not only will they not be judged for it, they'll be appreciated even more. By the way, just this thought and this understanding can inspire uh, tears. Now, here is uh, another interesting uh, piece of research. So we know that relationships are the number one predictor of of happiness. Uh, We know that uh, intimate, committed relationships, again, whether it's marriage or cohabitation, these kind of relationships, long-term committed relationships, contribute to overall happiness. Not that there are no conflicts and hardships and difficulties, but overall, they contribute to happiness for both men and women. The interesting finding is that one of the uh, genders benefits more from intimate relationships than the other, who benefits more, men benefit more than women.
1: Surprise, surprise, yeah.
0: Now, why is that? And the answer is because of that very research that you pointed to earlier, you know, men cry less. Or more generally, men express emotions less because it's, you know, it's more feminine to do that. And you, know, you have to be strong. And what happens as a result of this being strong is that emotions are suppressed very often for many men. The first time in their life when they do fully express emotions is when they're with a person for a long period of time and they trust that person, they trust their partner. And they know that it's okay not to be okay, as Demi Lovato said. Or um, that it's um, that it's okay to cry, to be vulnerable, and she will still love you after. And once that's okay, then they express their emotions, and that immediately raises their overall levels of of well being. They're expressing rather than suppressing for some of them for the first time in a very long, you know, since they were three years old or ten. So so expressing emotions is uh, is is critical for happiness. It's also critical for overcoming other. Difficult, emo, uh, difficult life experiences. You know, there's research on loss and, uh, you know, what do we do after loss? And again, you have two groups of people. One group says, you know, I'm, I'm going to get over this You know, I'm going to be strong. I'm not going to cry. And the other group just cries, literally breaks down. And we're always worried about the second group, not about the first. You know, we say, wow, they're, they're pulling through so well. Uh, Well, a year later, the second group usually is doing a lot better than the first group. Five years later, the second group is doing even better. And very often, the first group is still uh, struggling with that loss. Why? Because they didn't allow the natural healer do its work. They didn't allow nature to take its course. And part of nature, part of the healing process is crying, is hurting, is being sad, is struggling.
1: And can you tell me about from your new book from about Spire and, well, the, the, the letters in Spire and how this is a more helpful model for living and being sad well.
0: Yes. So, you know, happiness studies as a field looks at the uh, happiness from the whole being perspective, from the whole person. Perspective and the whole person means, as I mentioned, not just looking at pleasure, but looking at uh, different elements, different facets. So, first of all, spiritual well being. Spiritual well being is about having a sense of meaning and purpose in life, it's about being present.
1: So, not necessarily just religion, just to clarify.
0: And uh, not, not necessarily just religion. Yeah, of course, we can find meaning in religion. And yet, you know, I, I, I know um, investment bankers who lead a more spiritual life than, than, than priests. Why? Because they find meaning and purpose in their day-to-day existence. So yes, religion is a source of spirituality for many people, and yet it's not the only source of spirituality. You know, being present to the moment, whether I'm on a walk, whether I'm meditating, whether I'm, I'm having a conversation, these are potentially you know, spiritual experiences that contribute, of course, to whole person well-being, to happiness. Then there is physical well-being. That is a very important part of a a happy life. You know, regular physical exercise, for instance, has the same effect on our psychological well-being. as our most powerful psychiatric medication. Nutrition matters a great deal. Uh, Sleep, recovery in general, matters a lot for our for our happiness. Then there is intellectual well-being. That's an important part of happiness. You know, a uh, research recently came out showing that curiosity contributes to longevity. In other words, people who are always learning, who are asking questions, are, are healthier, not to mention happier as well. So curiosity may kill the cat, but it actually makes our life longer and better. Deep learning is an important part of a, of a, of a happy life.
1: So we're up to I, yes, okay. Yes,
0: so that's the I of SPIRE. So yeah. we have spiritual, physical, intellectual well-being. The R of SPIRE is relational well-being. And number one predictor of happiness, quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. And here, it actually doesn't matter what kind of relationships uh, we have. So it could be with, uh, with a romantic partner, it could be with family, it could be with colleagues and friends. But having relationships is critical and, and cultivating our relationships is critical for, for happiness. And then finally, it's about emotional well being. And emotional well being, yeah, it's about, first of all, learning to deal with painful emotions, giving ourselves the permission to be human, uh, writing about it, crying, uh, talking about emotions. And then it's also about cultivating pleasurable emotions, whether it's uh, gratitude, love, joy, and so on.
1: I think that's really interesting that it's the relationship in the R part is not just, I guess, you know, romantic relationships or that, that often get elevated in popular culture, but that it can be friends and it can be, you know, close relationships that we form with people who are not, we can't put everything on our spouse, for example. I think that's really helpful to emphasise.
0: I, I think it's, it's helpful and I think it's so important, especially today, because I mean, what, what, I, what, what is our ideal, again, perfect relationship? It's someone who's uh, you know we're we're incredibly attracted to. We have you know a, you know amazing sex. Someone who's brilliant and engages. Someone who listens to us. Who's always there for us. Someone who you know who helps us grow. Who's supportive. Who's you know in the long term the perfect parent. You know. So we're talking about five people here, not one person. You know. We we we, we can't we can't have it all. And expecting that of our relationships is unrealistic and detrimental and harmful. There's another false expectation that's hurting relationships, and that's the expectation that we will live happily ever after. Why do we have that expectation? Because the model that we have for our relationships comes from where? From, you know, Hollywood or Bollywood. Mm -hmm. From, uh, yeah, you know, struggling to find that right person. And then we find that person and we live happily ever after. A struggle-free life. You know, a life where, you know, we are uh, constantly engaged in meaningful conversations and constantly make amazing love. You know, and that doesn't happen, you know, after two, three, four years in the most perfect, ideal relationship, we'll start struggling. The, the passion that we experienced at the beginning will not, cannot last for for eternity. You know, not even for Mr. and Mrs. Smith.
1: Not even Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, it's very sad.
0: But, but the problem is that that is the model that we have, those movies, happily ever after. Instead, if we had a more realistic relationship, a more realistic expectation, which is, yeah, of course, let me celebrate this, th- this passion. Let's enjoy it. And we'll also struggle. There will also be conflict in our relationship. And these conflicts will actually lead to growth and development individually and interpersonally, that we can become more intimate over time. And that as a result of these struggles, our relationship will actually become better. And then there'll be more struggles and then better and on and on. You know, an imperfect relationship, an imperfect life, but a full and fulfilling life. If that is our expectation, That then we don't set ourselves up for uh, for failure, but rather we set ourselves up for potentially lifelong growth and development together. So to have realistic expectations about relationships, that is critical, just as it is to have realistic expectations about our personal emotional life is critical for happiness.
1: That does seem to be a major stumbling block, the, yeah, the expectations. And also because even if we are going to elect to be with somebody and then decide to work through the hard bits, you know, so many marriages, end in divorce and, and the idea that how much should we work through to stay in something? How much should we decide finding inverted commas the right person? And then even if we're not expecting the happy ever after, I mean, it just, it seems a miracle that anybody manages a long-term successful relationship, but yeah.
0: So um, a person who really addresses this issue in in, in a brilliant way is uh, Elaine de Botton. In his, uh, in, in, in his books, you know, he, and he writes about, um, uh, about real relationships. So, you know, I, I refer you to, to, to him, but, but let me just address it on a, on a very superficial level through the work by a psychologist, the late psychologist, David Schnarch. Uh, David Schnarch uh, wrote the book, Passionate Marriage. That's a book that changed my life for the better. Uh, specifically my my relationship so you know my my, my wife and i we'd been together uh, since the age of 14 you know we she's my high school sweetheart so you know we are we're, we're nearing on on 40 years uh, in our uh, relationship wow. you know we 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 got married and then um and then we uh, we started to to struggle when when that happened i and i'm not exaggerating i panicked you know, what's going on here you know, with the love of my life, you know, she, I thought she was, you know, my perfect partner and here we are, you know, have, struggling and, and having a conflict on real meaningful uh, aspects of our life of how we want to raise our children. You know, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, are we going to become a, a statistic? And, uh, and that's when I read David Schnarch. David Schnarch in his book, the most important concept that he introduces to my mind is the idea of a gridlock. A gridlock is not just a conflict where, you know, you, you, you fight, you make up, you make love, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're happily ever after again. No, a gridlock is where you enter a conflict and you disagree about something that is fundamental to who you are as a person and something that's fundamental to your partner as, as a person. And it's a conflict that seems, on the face of it, unresolvable, irreconcilable. It's something that is that deep, usually around one of four areas. It can be about others, but usually around one of four areas. It's either about, you know, children and education. How do we educate? Are we too harsh? Are we too easy on them? Do we spoil them? Do we not give them enough? So around education is one topic. Second topic, around uh, money. Do we spend enough? Do we spend too much? Do we save more? What, what do we do with, with, with money? The third is uh, sex. How much? too much too little what kind of sex is it a close relationship openly polygamous so around these issues and the fourth and final one is around in-laws or extended family uh, how much time do we spend with do we see them at all you know do we move to another country or planet so you know these are usually the four the four topics and there are others when we get to a gridlock in a gridlock and here is the most important point inevitably happens in Every committed relationship, it usually happens after three or four years into the relationship. So you have the grace of the honeymoon, but after three or four years, or you know, it could be two or it could be six years, but it happens inevitably in every relationship where you're committed, where you're together, where you're spending a lot of time with one another. And when it happens, one of three things can happen: one, you realize that you're just not meant for one another. You know, I thought you was the love of my life, but Evidently, she's not, if we can disagree about such deep and important values, and you go your separate ways. This is why you see such a spike in divorce rates or separation rates after three, four years. It's because they have faced their first gridlock and they're shocked and they're panicked and they go their separate ways, only to experience a gridlock in the next relationship because it's inevitable. Second path is you stay together, but you're not really together. So, you know, you're physically you know, still together, whether it's because of the kids or because of, uh, you know, financial constraints or because you don't think there is a better option out there. You're together, but you're not really together. The third path to take following a gridlock is to work through it. Even though there doesn't seem to be an end in sight, you know, a, a, a gridlock, it really is difficult. This is, you know, it's not child play. You know, there's struggles and there is pain and there is hurt and there is hurting one another, whether you want to or not. And there is fear, but you go through it. And if you go through it somehow, inevitably, in just about every case, you emerge. You come out the other side. How do you come out the other side? Stronger and better as a relationship and as an individual. David Schnarch talks about marriage. And again, this is for any long-term committed relationship, but marriage is a people-growing machine. That's how David Schnarch describes marriage people growing machine, you grow through it when, only when you go through the gridlock. Now, how do you go through it? You hold on to the relationship and you hold on to yourself. And somehow you navigate these two forces and eventually you emerge stronger with a stronger sense of self and with a more intimate and more passionate relationship. So you can imagine when I first read Passion Marriage, what a relief it was. Okay, so, so, so we're normal. So there's nothing wrong. There's everything right with our relationship. And it also gave us hope. Okay, so we can get to the other side of the gridlock. And you know, ever since then, again, we've been together for, for decades. We have gone through other gridlocks and they're not fun and they're painful. And yet we always know, okay, we're gonna get to the other side just as we have before, just as other people do. Because you know, the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. And the same applies to relationships that are overall happy. When there is hope, yes, we'll get over this this uh, hardship, this difficulty, this gridlock. When there is hope, then there is much more in the long-term joy and happiness.
1: Thank you. And then connected, I guess, to relationships and expectations, I'd love to talk briefly about arrival fallacy and and how we end up with such sky high expectations and how this can be problematic. Tell us about growing up and playing squash as a as a starter. Yes,
0: yeah, so from a very young age from the, you know the time I was I think probably 5 or 6 I knew that I wanted to be a professional athlete. You know initially it was uh, uh, basketball until I re- realized that I was the uh, you know the smallest guy in class then it was soccer then it was running eventually I I I ended up playing squash and uh, which became my passion and my goal in life was to become you know a professional squash player. And while I was passionate about squash, I would always struggle. I would struggle not not, not so much physically. Yeah, it's hard training, but I, I struggled psychologically because nothing was enough. You know, I, I'd won the, um, the national championship in, uh, in, in Israel, where I was originally from. I then moved to England, which is the, you know, the center of world squash, trained with the world squash champion, uh, John Shur Khan uh, from Pakistan. And I was never satisfied. You know, I could win a tournament. I could have a, you know, but, but it was always just a temporary relief from the ongoing stress that I felt. Eventually, I also didn't know what when, when enough was enough and I overdid it and I got injured and that ended my professional career. Uh, but then I took this very same harmful perfectionism. Again, not the positive, uh, adaptive perfectionism, which is hard work, ambition, responsibility. You know, the harmful perfectionism that doesn't know that enough is enough and applied it to my schoolwork and became miserable there as well. And then, of course, as I mentioned, applied it to my relationships. And that's also when I came up with with, with the concept of the arrival fallacy, because for years, I had believed that the path to happiness lies in arriving, in achieving, in fulfilling our our, our goal. So I really believed that when I became the Israeli national champion, that that's when all my misery uh, would be would be over, and I would find happiness. Or when uh, when I got into into Harvard, okay, so now I'm all set, and then I'll be happy. Or uh, or when I got my you know my dream job, or or got together with my you know my 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 dream woman, then I'd be happy. This was a fallacy because yes, initially I was extremely happy when I won the Israeli national championship or or or, or another tournament, but that 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 went that too passed. And that was a temporary relief. And then I became miserable again. Or, you know, when I got into Harvard, yeah, of course, I was very happy for, you know, a month or two. And then I went back to, to the normal day-to-day struggle, all the time expecting that I would be liberated from my misery by some achievement. It never happened. It can never happen. And that's when, you know, I, I coined the, the the phrase, arrival fallacy. The the false, the mistaken belief that, happiness resides when we reach a peak that happiness is all about um, the achievement of a goal a goal leads to a temporary relief that's all
1: what's happening in our brain is is this dopamine it's the goal hunting and we get the dopamine from the from the the pursuit of the goal and then it drops off. Is that right?
0: Yeah, and and you know it's great. I'm all for you know a, a dopamine high. It feels great to you know to to win a you know an, an Olympic medal or to um you know or to find your you know your dream partner. The problem here is the expectation that this will last forever, that this is a permanent fix to the question of of happiness. And, and it's not, it's, it is a temporary high which we can and ought to celebrate and appreciate and then realize that lasting happiness doesn't come from the achievement of a goal. Lasting happiness comes from the day-to-day pursuit of a meaningful goal. Lasting happiness comes from embracing and accepting sadness and fear and envy and, uh, and anxiety. Uh, happiness comes from spending quality time with people we care about and who care about us. And it comes from uh, going through gridlocks and hardships and difficulties with our loved ones. Happiness comes from learning, from, from asking questions, from not knowing. It's not from arriving at the answers, it's from asking the questions. So these are all ways of uh, cultivating happiness in, uh, in, in our life. I wish it were as easy as achieving a goal and then reaching the happily ever after but 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 it's not it's not and having realistic expectations is key fundamental to a happy life
1: it's very sound advice and and then finally i could talk to you for hours but i wonder i always ask, end by asking my guests what advice they would give to their 21 year old self about how to be sad well but i feel like for you especially that was quite a turbulent time having retired from professional sports. So looking back with all that you know now, what would you say to 21-year-old you?
0: Yeah, that too shall pass. Perfect. The reason why usually people who are older are happier is um, because they are more accepting of uh, shortcomings, they're more accepting of, uh, of imperfections. So if um, we can teach the, the young generation to be a little bit more accepting. You don't, you don't need to be as accepting and embracing of painful emotions or failures when you're 20 as when you are you are 60. But learning a little bit from the wisdom that comes with age can help children and uh, young adults lead a more full, fulfilling and ultimately more successful life. Be more accepting.
1: More accepting. Thank you so much. A pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much, Tal Ben-Shahar. Thank you, Helen. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.